Welcome to another edition of Dogger Pass Podcast. This for UFC Austin. I'm Paul Shaughnessy. Producer Megan's on the stairs. Cody Saftik is on the line. Breaking down pretty tidy little card. It's kind of like what I always kind of say on the on the show. It's like the Apex, you know, it's good that we have fights every single week, but like some of the cards that they have out there. I think they would have been embarrassed back before COVID to uh, to bring those types of offerings. They wouldn't have sold any tickets, frankly. And uh, when they go out back on the road, you get top to bottom. You know, there's no title fights or anything like that. But there's like a lot of intriguing bouts top to bottom on UFC Austin. So I'm looking forward to this one, Code. Yeah, absolutely. This is a solid fight night. It's got like 13 fights right now. I don't know. Is Anthony Smith and Khalil Roundtree confirmed? Like, I don't know if it's on or if it's off. Uh, but, I'm under uh, the assumption it's off. I didn't put it's anything. It's off? On. Is it on this card? Okay, well, I don't see it. sure it is, man. Roundtree? Yeah, no topology. Yeah, yeah. Well, just Google either guy. Smith apparently took the fight, but yeah, oh, I don't see it on. Yeah. I don't see it on like a lot of stuff, but then I see it on a ton of stuff. So. I'm pretty sure that fight's on. This is a 14-fight card, and it's, yeah, like Paul said, it's bangers top to bottom. So there's a couple guys that are fighting for their contract. Maybe their uh, fights wouldn't be considered high profile, but these guys are going to be fighting for it because, again, there's a lot on the line. So it's right before Christmas, and you could goddamn guarantee these guys want that second check. So hopefully they fight for our money, and uh, we can hit the winning lineup. Not going to lie, bro. Pretty sure that fight's not on this card. It's not yeah, on. It's maybe. not on UFC stats. It's not on FightOdds.io. There are no odds available for it. Tapology. Tapology yeah, there is. is. There's odds. There's odds. Uh, um, I mean, if I go on to, I think they maybe moved it to a different card, buddy. Because minus it's minus next, it's next, it's next or, week in Song versus Gutierrez. It's next week. Okay, that makes entirely more sense. Yeah, that makes entirely more sense. I see that there is a line for it, 225 round, two versus 185 Smith, but it's not on this week's card. All the same, man. We got 13 <laughs> fights to deal with here, and uh, I got a couple underdogs. I don't love them. I'm hopefully, hopefully my boy Paul can talk me into some sense, and there's a couple other underdogs like super tempting, but I don't have the cojones. So let's break it down. Let's discuss and then we can come up with the final game plan. This episode of the Dogger Pass Podcast and all episodes of the Dogger Pass Podcast are brought to you by Prize Picks. Use promo code DOP when making a new account to get a match up to $50. Or is it 100 I'm going to say 50 to be safe. Um, <laughs> I think it is 100 uh, on your first deposit. See, take one week off. I forget the damn line. Uh, Cody, 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 you threw me off, though. You know, starting to include <laughs> fights that are not on the card. I'm just like, how did I miss this? But yeah, it is. It has been. He was supposed to be on this card, but obviously, quick turnaround. I mean, like the card next week is a little bit soft, so makes sense that they would try to buff it up a little bit with Anthony Smith, former title challenger, Anthony Lionheart Smith. All right, we got Armin Sarukian taking on Benil Darius in the main event of UFC Austin. Sarukian's a minus three ten favorite. Dariush can be had for plus 260. Line seems a little bit wide on Armin Sarukian, but I think he's the goods. I think he's the real deal. He's got, I think he's going to have a sizable speed advantage here. Um, his grappling's good enough that, like, he can probably, you know, take Dariush down, hang out and guard, and avoid, you know, getting submitted or anything like that. I think the biggest difference is, yeah, the speed. 
the speed of his strikes, his entrances in and out of the pocket. Uh, obviously, it's punchy, kicky. It's MMA. Darius has, you know, has some power. Could maybe rock him or something like that. That can happen in literally every single fight. But I don't know if there's much meat on the bone at minus three ten. But I think Armin's a rightful favorite. Not one that I'm lining up to uh, to go bet this week. But Sarukian is the pick for me. What about you? Yeah, he's the pick definitely in terms of I think he wins more often than not. But again, yeah, the money line's been steamed at this point. And how comfortable do you feel? And Darius, who's 34 years old, coming off a loss, might be considered on the back burner, but still a live underdog. He's got skills everywhere, very good striker, <clears throat> solid cardio, high ring IQ, BJJ black belt, obviously. And with Saruki, and we know how good of a wrestler he is. But if you go back to the Gamrot fight, giving up the six takedowns, Maybe Benil can trip him up. Maybe he can have some success there. Again, you go back to Benil's fight against Matus Gamron. Uh, just tire him out a little bit, work his way back into it. Uh, use that body kick, use some some rangy strikes. Like That's how he would grind this thing out. That's how he might be able to, to exploit this 27-year-old a little bit. Maybe take her into the deeper waters, but he's only getting better. He's starting to rack up some serious in the UFC and he's just got that speed advantage a few times and when you look at his ability I think it's getting to the point where you certainly have to ever episode of Bookie Beatdown was UFC Fight Night 39 uh, Noguera versus Roy Nelson from Abu Dhabi and he got flatlined by Ranzi Nijim he's a big favorite over Ranzi Nijim got knocked out in the first round and uh, and that was like the big underdog call that we had on that very first episode of Bookie Beatdown that was almost 10 years ago first time he'd been knocked out if you look at these other fights though man, there's a whole bunch of them right his fight with Edson Barbosa, flying knee, knocked out. Fight with Evan Dunham, takes a whole lot of damage in the third round. Fight with Alexander Hernandez, forearm chop, 42 seconds into the very first round. His fight with Drew Dober, he gets beat up in the first round, rocked a bunch of times, ends up arm barring him. His fight with Drakkar Close, he full out does the stanky leg before catching Drakkar Close. And then in his last time out against Charles Oliveira, he ended up on Charles. You know, this is black belt versus black belt. He had almost three minutes of top control. And as soon as Charles creates that space, gets back up, and puts a little bit of steam on him, he he fell right over. So when he's at his best, like, say, the Tony Ferguson fight or, you know, the the Diego Ferreira fight, like, he's able to lean on guys and kind of just slow them down and maybe get them to the ground and rack up some top control and avoid those big strikes. And those guys aren't really big strikers to begin with. Whenever he fights a guy with, like, decent power heavy power he tends to take a beating and if he doesn't have that wrestling to rely on and just reactionary takedowns to take down saruki and then he's going to be getting backed up and getting hit and i just don't see it going all that well for him can he can he drag this into that fourth and fifth round yeah absolutely he's got cardio he's a consummate professional but again this 27 year old kid's an animal he's fought five rounds before himself and he's only getting better so big strong I like where he's at. I don't love the money line. I absolutely don't love the money line. And I, I like decision props, but I got an impression that he's probably going to hit Darius with something, hurt him, capitalize on that, and uh, kind of announce himself in the division. The UFC knows that he's a talented kid, and they know that he's going to be in these bigger fights because he's a top five lightweight. The problem is, is that nobody knows who he is. He has no name within the division. So Benil, a guy that's been in the UFC for a decade, fought in a who's who's, and he's coming off a fight with Charles Oliveira, very high profile. I think it's, you know, going to give Sarukin some rub and further his career. So we'll see. Again, I think Darius is a lot a bigger. Uh, like, the, the, it's a good plus money for sure. And he's he, he, he I think he's he going to give a better account of himself than that might dictate. But it's not enough for me to personally get behind him. So got to go with Sarukin. Got to go with the youth here. Yep. Co-main event, we've got Jalen Turner taking on King 
Bobby Green. Jalen Turner is a minus 200 favorite. Green can be had for plus 170. I already bet Bobby Green. Why? Well, Bobby Green was already getting ready for this card. He's supposed to take on Dan Hooker. Dan Hooker pulls out. Jalen Turner, I mean, missed weight last time out at 155 pounds when he, you know, when he fought Dan Hooker. Um, and in that fight, you know, he had success early. He's enormous. He's like six foot three. I think it's really tough for him to make 155. Landed some good shots on Hooker, and then, uh, you know, second half of that fight, his um, his his cardio fell off an absolute cliff, and Dan Hooker was able to flip the script and, and get the W there. Um, there's no doubt in my mind that Jalen Turner's dangerous, but Bobby Green insane uh, has been historically very, very durable, incredibly hard to submit. Um, no doubt in my mind, he's giving up a lot of intangibles, but like Turner's got those intangibles in terms of reach and, and length and all of that against literally everybody at 155 pounds, you know, green. I don't love playing green when he's minus 300, you know, minus 400 in some of his fights. Cause he does have a tendency to fight to the level of his competition, make everything a little bit closer than it needs to be. But, uh, yeah, I grabbed some plus 188. Well, plus 170, which is on the board, is probably one of the worst m- numbers on the market right now. There's plus 180s readily available uh, all the way out around the market right now. And I'll be, I'm already on green, and I will definitely have my eyes out on green round three because if Turner has a tough weight cut coming in on short notice for a weight class that he already struggles to make, you know, you know Bobby can go a hard three rounds, get a lot of uh, got get a lot of damage going. So, green round three and like the the plus two thousand range seems mighty spicy to me as well. What's your take here? Yeah, this one I'm super torn on. So on one hand, I think I'd like to take Jalen Turner, but everything that you're mentioning, I've already thought about, and I agree 100%. Man, short notice, he already has trouble making 155 pounds. Going into deep waters with a guy like Bobby Green, probably not going to be great. That plus money looks good. Again, I just don't know if I have the cojones to pull the trigger on it. The one thing I will add to what you're saying, though, and what I'm very even more tempted of looking at, is the Bobby Green live number after that first round. Jalen Turner's a problem. He absolutely is a problem. I think he's one of the more talented guys at 155 pounds. How he makes 155 pounds, anybody's guess. No no idea. Six foot three, 77-inch reach. He's got a five-inch height advantage over Bobby Green. He's got a six-inch reach advantage over Bobby Green. The guy's the real deal. The thing is, I think those weight cuts are leading to him getting drawn out. And as good as he's looked, and he's looked very good, those last two fights are pretty indicative of that. The Matus Gamrot fight, he starts off very well using that distance, using that speed, touching Gamrot up, having a good first round. The more Gamrot comes forward and presses him, the more Gamrot starts leaning on him with the wrestling, the more he starts to tire him. The more he starts to tire him, his game just completely falls apart, right? So Gamrot ends up winning it. But hey, Bobby Green can't wrestle like that. That's fine. The Dan Hooker fight, bigger problem. The first round, Jalen Turner looks like a million bucks, man. He looks unbelievably good. Here is one of the most talented lightweights on the roster. And with this length, world world champion st- potential. And then the longer this fight goes, Hooker is nothing but tough, man. Stays in his face. Shows you he's got that grit. Keeps coming forward. Keeps applying himself. And then just starts landing. Starts landing that volume. And then you see Turner. The wheels start to fall off. Guy starts to slow down. Guy starts to second-guess himself. And it's another close fight. Shouldn't have been a split decision. 
It was rounds two, three hooker all day. But again, Jalen Turner in the first round looks awesome. And Bobby Green's problem is that he's probably the slowest starter outside of that last fight against Grant Dawson. That one's still the anomaly. Can't tell you what happened there. But but Bobby Green's traditionally a very slow starter. He shoulder rolls. He finds his distance. He comes forward. And I think Turner's going to have a good first round. Um, if Turner wins the first round, looks good doing it, this number is going to swell up. And you can get much better Bobby Green knowing that 2-3 Bobby Green are his best rounds. And 2-3 seem to be where Jalen Turner's, you know, starting to hurt. If this is 1-1 going into the third, again, you're definitely going to be favoring Bobby because he's just got the ability to throw up over 100 significant strikes and keep going, keep fighting, keep keep striking, even though it's not the bigger the biggest power punches. He just touches and goes, touches and goes, uses the jab, uses the shoulder roll, throws the lead hand, you know, keep circling. Leg kicks, yeah, once in a while, but mostly find the distance, keep active, keep in the guy's face. So why, why I'm not outright picking him or why I'm still at least on the fence about it is, yeah, man, Jalen Turner is faster than him. He's longer than him. He's the better striker than him. And for as much as we like Bobby Green, he is a bit of a clown, man. He just allows his opponents to land for the most part. He is a bit of a slow starter at times outside of, I'm, what I'm thinking in the Grant Dawson fight is that James Krause was like, I need you for one last time, buddy, and 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 gave him the worst, worst game plan because I couldn't tell you. But I'm thinking Jalen Turner minds his P's and Q's and he has no idea what he's doing. He's flat-footed. He's stumbling around, and he landed some good shots. He hurt Bobby Green at one point, and then Bobby Green finger-poked him. Takes five minutes, and when the fight restarts, Ferguson never got the momentum. But you could see he struggled with guys that were long and kind of unorthodox, right? And I think he's going to struggle mightily against Jalen Turner. It comes down to can he flip the script in the second round and win the second round? Because if he loses the first, loses the second, I'm not thinking like you're thinking third round TKO. I'm thinking he's losing a decision. If he can drop the first, win the second, then yeah, I think he can box him up, apply pressure. He's live underdog. I'd like even better plus money after the first round but shit man i don't know if i'm there yet so I, i'm gonna wait for weigh-ins because that's a that's basically it for me jalen turner had a full camp in his last fight against hooker and he misses weight by two pounds bad look comes in at 158 this time around he's taking it on short notice he's still only 28 he's not getting any smaller these cuts ain't getting any easier so if he looks like shit on the weigh-ins maybe that's enough for me to go bobby green's side but for the time being, I'm just going to assume that he's got everything in order and he would have taken this fight otherwise. So uh, tentatively, I'm going to take Jalen Turner. But I am not disagreeing with any of your points. I see them all. All right. We got uh, Rob Font taking on Davison Figueredo. Rob Font is a minus 140 favorite. Davison Figueredo can be had for plus 120. Here's another interesting fight. You know, Davison mm-hmm. moving up to bantamweight. Flyweight, obviously former flyweight champion. Weight cut for him, particularly as he gets older, was getting very, very difficult. Like, he's very, very vocal about how hard it was. He's always very big for flyweight. Um, Packs a punch. Like, he's going to be giving up some size here. I think he's three inches shorter. He's giving up three inches in reach. But I don't know. I think Davison could fit in pretty well into this division. On the other side, you got Rob Font, volume machine. If this thing goes full three rounds... And it's just like a boxing match. Like maybe Davidson does some good work really, really early, but I feel like Dave, or sorry, Rob Font should be able to box him up um, and should put up crazy volume, volume that in three in a three round fight I just really haven't seen out of Davidson. But we know it with Font, 
he gives up rounds by being chinny. Like, he hasn't, like, flat out got knocked out, but he gets knocked down. And that's always just a bad look uh, in any judge's uh, eyes. I think the line's very, very accurate here. Um, I'm going to side ever so slightly with Font, with that volume. Say that uh, Davison, you know, moving up a weight class, maybe the power isn't going to be as damaging up here. But, um, yeah, I'm not too, too confident. And it's like, I've seen Font dropped enough. I know Figueredo hits hard. That first round is going to be very, very telling in this fight um, how good Figueredo is at 135 pounds. So I go with Font uh, minus 140 favorite just strictly based on volume. And I think over the fifth, over a 15 minute fight, um, I think he should uh, do more than enough to, to get his hand raised here. What do you think, bud? Yeah, I'll take the underdog actually in Figueredo. Got to okay. take some dogs some places. I get, didn't have the cojones in the co-main event, but I'll take the flyer here. So what I like when I'm taking an underdog is that he's got multiple paths to victory, not just puncher's chance or not just he might slip on a banana peel and win this fight. He's multiple paths, right? And so the first path is just like you mentioned. He does have the big power advantage. I get that he's coming up from flyweight, but this guy's the biggest flyweight on the roster. He's giant. He can fight at 135, and I think people have wanted to see him fight at 135 for quite some time. When he's on at flyweight, he's tremendous. When he's, I think, struggling with the weight cuts, he is awful. Why is he so 50-50? Why is it like, damn, one of the best in the world, pound for poundless, and then he's completely out of steam? But I think it's these bad weight cuts. So I'm interested in seeing him at 135 pounds, first and foremost. And I think the power does carry over. When you see him at his best, he's got a ton of power, a lot of clean knockdowns, uh, that, that short little right hand. Again, you look at this long list of victims, it's proof of itself. Font, meanwhile, yeah, he's beating up Jose Aldo, man. He is landing combinations. He is dancing. But whenever Jose lands anything, he wears it. He stumbles around. Two knockdowns recorded, but again, a couple where he's on his feet, but man, he is big time hurt. The Marlon Vera fight, again, he's given Chito Vera everything he can handle. And whenever Chito lands on him, ooh, he does the stanky leg. Three clean knockdowns in that fight. So I think with Figueredo, again, maybe he's giving up the volume, but he's going to be landing the bigger shots, the more telling shots. He rocks him a few times. He knocks him down a few times. You're not getting it back, especially in Texas, man. This is the Texas Commission. I think they're going to be looking for those bigger shots, those more you know, the more eye-catching blows. So I think Figueroa has that path of victory. The second thing here, very interesting. The second thing here, though, is Rob Fawn apparently can't wrestle for shit, right? So that last fight with Corey Sanhagen in Nashville, uh, I was there live. Interesting main event, two really nice strikers, going to go on, put on a clinic. I get he took the fight on short notice, but no excuse, man. Corey Sanhagen went seven for seven on takedowns, okay? Seven for seven. He rode him for damn near 20 minutes of that fight. With mm -hmm. a torn bicep, Rob Font landed nine significant strikes in 25 minutes. Nine significant strikes. Unacceptable, man. Seven for seven on the takedowns. Unacceptable. And a complete inability to get back up to one's feet with a guy on top of him who's compromised with a torn bicep. Short notice, I get it. But we know Font for a dope striker. Guy's a dope striker, and he's throwing volume, and he's jabbing your face off, and he's throwing combinations, and he's slick. And, you know, those guys over uh, in New England, the New England cartel, like, man, I like them, Tyson Chartier and the, and the whole cast. I like them. He's a dope striker. If you match him up with strikers like Martin Vera and like Jose Aldo, they're going to be fun fights. Cody Garbrandt, fun fights. What he showed against 
Corey Sanhagen was it was a striker. He was fighting a striker, and it could have been a fun fight. But Sanhagen just decided, I'm just going to take him down, and that's all he needed to do. And so for Davidson, he's only fought one guy over the last three years, and it's Brandon Moreno. But Brandon Moreno is an excellent wrestler, very very good scrambler, world-class guy, world champion. And uh, he took him down once the last time, twice the time before that, once the time before that, twice the, the time before that. He got a takedown over Joseph Benavidez, two takedowns over the current champ, Alexander Pantoja, two takedowns over John Moraga, who wrestled collegiately at ASU. I honestly think if he just trips up, Rob Font gets on top of him, that's the end. I don't think Font gets back up, at least not what he's seen from the last fight. So now I've got a double path of victory. I can land the bigger shots. I can land the knockdown. I can just sprinkle in a takedown or two. So plus money. And like at 135, if he's feeling better, um, yeah, then he's going to have a little more gas in the tank. He'll fill out. He'll still be a big guy. He'll still be a heavy guy. That power translates. He mixes in some wrestling. I'm willing to take that flyer, yeah. So, it'll be dog number one. All right, we got Sean Brady taking on Kelvin Gastelum. Sean Brady is a minus 120 favorite. Gastelum can be had for plus 100. I don't know if you've been on Gastelum's Instagram, Cody. Obviously, this fight, another one that's interesting from a weigh-ins perspective. Gastelum finally... Moving back down to welterweight. Guy's been so undersized, taking on some of the world elite at 185 pounds. Obviously, he's struggled mightily many times. Maybe he was a little bit more, you know, younger, more immature. I don't know. The guy's, I don't, I feel like he's never looked better. Like, if you go on his Instagram right now, look at, like, pictures of Gastelum. The guy's pretty, he's pretty chiseled right now. Obviously, you know. We've grown up with him. He's been around the organization forever. He barely had any fights on his record when he entered the UFC, and now he's 18-8. and Um, And maybe, you know, 32 years old, he's going, like, I've got three years of, like, you know, make it or break it here. And maybe he's finally, like, take... I'm not saying he wasn't taking it seriously, but... Him fighting at 185 in a lot of those matchups, you're just like, this is clearly not the weight class for you. But he just kept missing 170. On Instagram, the guy is looking shredded. Shredded. Better than he's ever looked before. Will that translate into the cage? I don't know. But he's, you know, at 180, taking on some of the strongest guys in the world. Some people were able to take him down, but he's always had pretty good wrestling. I think he's going to have a massive striking advantage in this fight against Brady. I'm willing to side with Gastelum uh, at 170. Uh, I'm going to wait until the weigh-ins to ensure that, like, you know, that he makes it and doesn't look like Skeletor or doesn't look like he's going to pass out or something like that. But I think I think this is uh, a good spot to jump back on the Kelvin Gastelum chain. What about you? Yeah, I can't quite get there. I, I mean, Kelvin Gastelum at 170 is where he should be. And I think that's something that all the fans have been echoing for a really long time now. And yet at no point did he himself say, I'll go back down to 170. So I don't know what changes now, now that, you know, things aren't going great. Yeah, he's coming off a win, but things haven't been going great. Like, why now the move to 170? So you, you do have to wait and see. The other thing is the last time that he was contracted to make 170 pounds was against Tyron Woodley. 2015 right so eight years ago and he misses weight by 10 pounds spends the night at hospital after weigh-ins don't know why they allowed him to fight and he actually lost a split decision but one of the worst fights you've ever seen in your life this is the last time he tried to make 170 ever missed weight by 10 pounds 
So yeah, Instagram showing that he's looking good. And I bet you he is, but he's still 10 pounds off, off the marker from right now. We're recording on a Wednesday fights are got to weigh in on Friday. Like he's still going to be, you know, in for it, but yeah, you're going to have to wait to weigh in to see what he looks like. The other thing is, is that he's been fighting a lot of welterweights at 185 pounds and Chris Curtis's last time out the first round. He looks good. The second round, Chris Curtis starts to work his way back in. It's a headbutt that drops Curtis. Outside of that, man, Curtis probably would have won the second round, and then Chris Curtis does win the third round. So it's first round Gaslam, third round Chris Curtis, headbutt in the second, kind of makes it look good for Gaslam, and he wins the fight. But I didn't think he looked, I didn't think he looked great. And then prior to that, he fights the world's best guys. He always gives them a scrap. He's absolutely a fighter. He's in it to win it. He's just like that undersized go getter. So at one seventy, does it change anything? I don't know. See, his advantage by being a smaller guy at one eighty five is he's faster. And he's a little bit smaller, but he gets inside the pocket and he works these guys over. At welterweight, he's going to be giving up a lot of speed. So if he has a bad weight cut, that's bad. But on top of that, I think he's going to realize like, damn, these guys at welterweight are a lot faster than I remember. So could be a little bit problematic. Here's the biggest thing that I'm seeing problematic for him is that if Chris Curtis stands in front of him and bangs it out with him, and it's a good time, but Chris Curtis shoots zero takedowns. Jared Cannonier, he stands in front of him. They bang it out. They have a good time. Jared Cannonier shot zero takedowns. Kelvin Gosselin went 0 for 3 against uh, Chris Curtis. He went 0 for 8 against Jared Cannonier, but those guys never tried to take him down. Robert Whitaker wanted to take him down, and he did with ease. You know, on paper, Whitaker's got Australian wrestling, Commonwealth team at one point, could have. Uh, but Gastelum, geez, he wrestled in college. He, he, he's got some grit. He, he's got some ability to take guys down. But no, he doesn't. You look back at when he fights wrestlers, when he fights grapplers, not good. I think he's got 62% takedown defense in the UFC. Gave up takedown to Ian Heinish. He gave up to Darren Till. Uh, he gave up takedown to Jacques Ray Souza. The Chris Weidman fight, I know it's a long time ago now. But the seven takedowns, and Weidman just played with him on the ground. When you match him up with guys that are going to strike with him, again, he's a hungry go-getter that's going to crash the pocket and throw uh, over 100 significant strikes and make it a fun scrap. But the guys that want to take him down and grapple him, they give him just a lot of problems. And I think that Sean Brady's that. I think for my money's where Sean Brady's one of the best uh, pure jiu-jitsu guys in the division. Now, can he tie the other skills together? Maybe, maybe not. But... Yeah, I, I think that if this fight hits the ground, he's going to have a big advantage. And then now it comes down to the wrestling. And whereas Kelvin Gastelum on paper, his wrestling is just as good, if not better. It's the takedown defense part of his wrestling is not that good. And I mean, he, he himself offensively is 0 for 11 in takedowns in his last two fights. So his offensive wrestling isn't working. But again, I go back to when guys are trying to take him down, they're able to do it. When they want to outscramble him, they're able to do it. When they're able to take his back, they're going to do it. And Brady's going to give you all types of trouble, man. Um of course, his fight with Michael Chiesa, who's a top-level grappler. He looks like a million bucks in that fight. But it's it's a grappling match with Craig Jones right after. So for those who don't know, Craig Jones is one of the best jiu-jitsu guys on the planet, right? He's legit. And he's a big boy, right? I think he grapples around the 200-pound marker. And uh, Brady is slick. He's top-notch. Now, the first round against Bilal Muhammad, he looks good. The second round against Bilal Muhammad, it's like, oh, shit. I'm in there with a guy that ain't going nowhere, is world-class, has gas tank, infinite gas tank, world-class wrestling striking is largely developed and is cast iron well that's a serious problem for you this guy's not going away he's going to break you sure kelvin gaslam yeah he's tough he's gonna be coming forward he's gonna try to replicate a lot a lot of what Bilal muhammad did but if Bilal muhammad can stuff the takedowns that's fine Bilal muhammad can survive on the ground that's fine kelvin gaslam gets taken down kelvin gaslam gets put in bad positions 
I'm not so sure he's overcoming it. So uh, hats off to you for taking the underdog shot here. Uh, just again, one that I couldn't come to on a personal level. All right. We got uh, Joaquin Silva taking on Clay the Carpenter Guida. Silva, a minus 300 favorite. Guida can be had for plus 250. Who you got here, bud? Yeah, Clay Guida is like the little energizer bunny that keeps ticking, but at some point he's got to run out, man. And he's nearing his 42nd birthday. I think it's later in the month. Um, so it's just like, I, here's the thing with Clay Guida. You'll remember him because you're an OG fan from that or like early 2000s, mid 2000s era. Clay Guida, the best thing about him wasn't his wrestling, wasn't that grind. It was an infinite gas tank. Just never gets tired. Go, 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 go. Never takes a stool between rounds. Bouncing, burping, bouncing, bouncing. Right back at five-round cardio, pff, no problem. But like father time has affected him. And I've noticed in the last few performances is that he's definitely slowing down. And when he kind of, if he can get the takedowns, great. If he's fighting guys that have bad takedown defense and bad cardio, then he's just got to survive that first, let them tire out a little bit, apply a little bit of pressure, take them down and grind on them. And he has his way. If you can stuff the takedowns and force him to strike, his striking just never caught up. It never really got there. And with Joaquim Silva, he's chinning. Maybe the guy can't take a punch. But two things about him is his takedown defense is pretty all right. Armin Sarukin takes him down four times, whatever. But like for the most part, this guy's like a pretty stonewall Brazilian. And his cardio is pretty damn all right as well. He throws heat, and he can throw heat into that third. So I think the problem here with Clay Guida is that if he's not able to get those takedowns early... He's going to be getting boxed up. Now, the second round, you're down around. You need your opponent to tire so that you can get those takedowns going. And if it doesn't happen here from, from Joaquin, then, then I think he's just going to be getting boxed around. So, again, when you look at Silva, it's like a lot of these performances were, you know, pretty decent, man. I mean, uh, Jared Gordon knocks out Jared Gordon. Nazrat Hakparaz, he was good at the time. He got caught. Ricky Glenn, he gets caught. Uh, Armin Sarukian, third round, he gets caught. You got to have that power. You got to be able to sting him and get his respect. Because outside of that, he fights some pretty decent rounds. He fights a lot of good moments within the rounds. It's the second he gets clipped, the whole plan's out the window. Clay hasn't knocked anybody out. Shit, man, in time, in time. He does have a couple knockouts on his record. I want to bring it up exactly. But last time Clay knocked somebody out was... Joe Loza. That was six years ago. So is it possible? Sure, it's possible. Is it probable? No. No. The only thing is the money line. I mean, it's just a little bit too wide for a guy in 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 Joachim Silva that's just not trustworthy. So I don't love it. But again, it's not enough for me to jump on old man Clay to get the job done. So the pick's got to be Joachim Silva. All right. Uh, yeah, I I was tempted on on Clay Guida. I mean, maybe I'll have a look, see out on the on the interwebs when those get released for like a Clay Guida by split decision type of thing. We are in Texas, you know. They are known for pretty horrible decisions. Clay has a a way of finding, uh, you know, ways to find judges' favor in a lot of different fights. But that would be like an absolute sprinkle, and I would expect like a Clay Guida by sub to be like north of 25 to 1. Like, not a very firm take. I I find it hard to really back him. He's given up a lot of power and athleticism here. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, he's almost 42 years old. I echo a lot of the same sentiments that you have there. Uh, I'm not touching the money line by any stretch of the imagination. 
Joaquin Silva would be the pick, I suppose, for whatever that's worth. But we'll see how crazy a Clay Guida by submission, or not Clay Guida by split decision prop is out on the market. And I may not be able to help myself, but uh, we'll see when those markets get released. It's way too early in the week. But yeah, I bet you it'll be like 25, 30 to 1, 35 to 1. Like, don't have to risk a lot to win a lot. So that would be, I could see if Clay wins, like, I really don't think it's going to be like a dominant performance where Clay, you know, knocks him out or, or like really, really, you know, dominates from pillar to post and wins really really cleanly I think like he probably gets rocked he loses round one round two is relatively close and then Clay takes over late and it ends up being really closer than the money line would suggest um so yeah I think there could be some value on like a clay by split type of prop moving on down we got Puna Soriano taking on Dustin Stoltzfus Soriano minus 300 favorite Stoltzfus can be had for plus 250 who you got I, I want to like Soriano. I do. I really do. I mean, it seems like he's got some decent enough skills. He comes from a wrestling base, although you wouldn't know that if you shoot takedowns on him. The takedown defense certainly isn't there. And he's got that big right hand. But even back to his contender series fight against Jamie Pickett, you can see when he doesn't have his own way in the first round, he definitely starts to fatigue. And once he starts to fatigue, there's no combinations out of him. There's no volume. It's one and done striking. He keeps his hands very low. And uh, he gets by on the fact that he's just very durable. But he's looked very bad in his losses. And then his last time out against Roman Kopilov, you know, it's the complete nightmare situation. I mean, he gets absolutely outworked, gases, and this time the durability doesn't bail him out. He takes a whole lot of damage from Kopilov, who is a volume guy, who just puts a lot of pressure on him, and eventually he succumbs to it and gets TKO'd. So he trains with some of the best guys in the world in Las Vegas. He does seem very talented, and he's still young enough that I'd like to think he can get back on track. But giving him Brandon Allen and giving him Roman Kopilov these are not exactly great fights for him. This would be, I think, a lot more suited for him. Dustin Stolfoots, there's nothing great about his game. His wrestling's not great. His striking's not great. His cardio, I, his cardio's not bad. And yet you look how he loses his fights. And a lot of the time, it's like he gives it up in the third round. The Rodolfo Vieira fight, he's doing okay. And then he gets rear naked choked in the third round. The Gerald Mearshard fight, very next fight, doing very well. Winning the fight. About to win the fight. Gets on top of him. Gives up an easy sweep. Gets submitted in the third. So, the the ring IQ is not there. The cardio is questionable. But again, there's just no real X factor to his game. Nothing to like about him. So the other weird tangible about this fight is that um, Justin Stolfus is saying that he's had COVID four times. And apparently is like it's wrecked his body. Like his can't breathe and his lungs are functioning at half capacity. And I don't know how you're constantly training. I don't even know who would know they have COVID. Like do people still regularly take tests? But the fact that he knows he's had it four times and the fact that he's bringing it up as this is why he's been off, it doesn't bode well for a Dustin Stolfus pick. Could he win? Yeah, he could win because Soriano's really not all that good. But you're looking to fade Soriano more than you like anything about Dustin Stolfus. So, again, here's a guy that I don't think is super durable. You're seeing his last fight against a boost, Magomedov, 19 seconds into the first round. So Soriano has that angle that maybe he comes out vintage form, first round finisher, lands that big power, takes him out just like he used to do back in the day, just like he did against Locha Lungambula. Maybe he comes back to that version. If he doesn't come back to that version, I think he just paces himself. And those one-and-done strikes don't work against most of the division, probably work against Stolfus. That wrestling that's not been holding up against the Brandon Allens of the world or the Roman Kopilovs of the world, it probably holds up against Dustin Stolfus. 
I think he does all around the lesser competition will allow Soriano to look a lot better and get that confidence going. So I, uh, I think he wins the fight. Am I super confident in it? No, because I don't really like Soriano all that much, but I think he wins this fight. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the credentials, you know, the former standout, like high school wrestler from Hawaii, he's got power in his hands. We've seen that before, but it's like the cardio has been a massive, massive letdown, but I'm kind of with you. It's just like, there's really nothing that stole to, I didn't know about that COVID thing. So that, throws an a even bigger wrench into it that like I wouldn't really want to back Dustin Stolfus here. And frankly, it's like you look at like a lot of the times with Soriano, I'll say that he's really, really undersized for the division. But it's like based off of at least, you know, topology and UFC stats, like Soriano's actually not even giving up that much size here. He's giving up like an inch in height and like a couple inches in reach. Kind of not too important. Um, and then you look through Stolfus's run. What? He gets into the UFC by an injury to Joe Pfeiffer. Goes on a three-fight losing streak. Um, you know, I guess he had, he had some success against Rodolfo, but like, uh, it was, you know, kind of threw away the bag in, the, uh, in round three against Rodolfo. Wasn't able to keep him off of him. Obviously gets subbed. Um, yeah, yeah, and I guess he had some success against Gerald. Uh, the only win is against Dwight Grant, and you go through Dwight Grant's record. It's like Dwight Grant literally has no real tangible good wins, particularly at any against anybody at like 185 pounds. Yeah, that fight was and, close too. And then Stolfu shows that you know the chin is obviously big time question mark, which is what P- Puna is going to be coming for for in his last time out, taking on Abus Magomedov, who starches him in 19 seconds. And then now you say four times having COVID, yada, yada, yada. I don't love backing Soriano as a minus 300 favorite, but I would struggle to pull the trigger very much so on Dustin Stolfus. What's Puna round one? Is that a number that I might be interested in? It's plus 200. Stand by for further confirmation. That, that That could get a little bit of money for me. I mean, what's him by KO one? plus 335 now you're speaking my language if he's gonna win it's probably gonna be knockout probably gonna be early if it gets drawn out uh turned into an uglier fight probably a better fight for Stolfus uh in that respect so that prop is actually surprisingly wider than I thought it would be for a minus 300 favorite here here goes me dumping money Cody on Soriano again uh, moving on down, we've got uh, Julia Avila taking on Misha Cupcake Tate. Uh, Avila, minus 150 favorite. Misha Tate, plus 130. Tate 2.0 didn't last long there, Code. Supposed to be a new weight class. You know, a new vision on life. Everything about this matchup, moving back up to bantamweight, kind of screams to me that, like, this is a sneaky secret retirement fight and you know what we think about retirement fights around here cody mma is a cruel cruel bitch there's no there's never a nice ending to any story um i don't know the fact that she was you know came back in 125 we're applauding her for looking so good at 125 okay she's gonna have a lot of size in this division Gets absolutely mopped up 
by Lauren Murphy and then immediately moving back up to 135. I don't know. A lot of red flags here for Misha Tate. I know it's the CF dot model, the Pat Mayo special to take her, but I'm going to side with Avila here. I, I have a creeping suspicion that this could be like, if Avila wins, both fighters get the, uh, get the microphone at the end and there's some gloves down in the cage at the end of it. Just something weird about this one. What, what do you think? Yeah, you got the impression. Misha Tate, what she got left to prove. She's won a world title. She's fought all the best girls in the division. She's coached on a tough uh, season of the Ultimate Fighter. She's largely accepted a coaching role over the last number of years. She's a mother now. She's a multimillionaire. What has she got left to prove at this point? I, I, I don't know. But yeah, she keeps doing it. So at any point, could she decide, I don't want to compete anymore? Yeah, she could retire at any point. Avila, meanwhile, I mean, I'm surprised she's still on the roster, not because she was losing, not because she wasn't a decent fighter, but she blew her knee out and she took damn near three years off. So she's just not been competing lately. She's 35 years old. She has, what, is it 10 pro fights, 11 pro fights, and she's 35 years old. So she's not someone that's ever been very active. And now she's coming off a couple year long layoff because of a blown out knee. None of this bodes well. So. I don't know, man. I think I'm just going to take that flyer on Misha Tate. Uh, here's the thing with Julia Avila. Okay, so first and foremost, she looks like a decent striker. Looks like when you watch tape on her that she's the better striker than Tate. She's a little bit stronger. She's the big, strong girl at 135. Some uh, She ran track and field at the University of Notre Dame. She's a good athlete. But the wins, Paul, the wins are... Uh, Kenny Pian- or Penny Kianzad in her debut... Gina Mazzani, Oof. right? And and Julia Stolyarenko, also known as Stolia Stenko. Mm-hmm. It gotta be as low as it possibly gets. You got Julia Stolyarenko, right? Super low level. The Gina Mazzani, come on, man. And then Panny Kanzad would actually be considered the best of those. And Panny Kanzad fight was four years ago. So she hasn't actually beaten anybody decent in the slightest bit. Misha Tate, meanwhile, Misha Tate's still competing against Catelyn Vieira. She's still competing against Raquel Pennington, Amanda Nunez. Wins over Holly Holm. Wins over Jessica I. Wins over Sarah McMahon. Wins over Liz Carmouche, the current Bellator champion. She's just fought at such a higher level that even though you've seen her struggle, right? If she was fighting Gina Mazzani, she would blow the brakes off of her, right? Those are the facts. So... It's, it's a little bit deceiving to say Avila is a better fighter than Tate when Tate's fighting the legitimate competition. Avila really hasn't. Now, we've talked about Avila's three wins, but the loss, the loss is what you really got to zone in on, right? She's three to one favorite over Sinjara Eubanks. Everybody expects her to win. Pretty sure I put her on the job ticket because I'm an idiot. And she has no takedown defense. Beyond having no takedown defense and getting taken down three times by Sinjara Eubanks, absolute zero ability to get back up to her feet. Not Nilch. Nada. Didn't exist. Couldn't get back up. Spent the entire fight on her back. Loses. Comes back for one fight with Stolyarenko like a year later. And then blows out her knee and takes two more years off. So has she gotten any better? Can she wrestle all of a sudden? Again, she's 35. Is her body healthy? Is she 100%? Not likely. She's got a bunch of ring rust. She's not jumping in there against some person off the contender series. She's jumping in there against Misha Tate. So how is she the favorite after the layoff? And the abysmal level of competition like that, that I couldn't really tell you. Tate, meanwhile, Tate's losing, but she's competing in some of the better girls. And even in the Ketlin Vieira fight, she lands 122 significant strikes. Outstruck Ketlin Vieira, 122 to 113. 
and took Ketlin Vieira down. And it was a five-round fight. Is that not competitive? Her fight with Lauren Murphy, yeah, I didn't think she looked good at all. Oh, for seven and takedowns, bad look. But she still landed 85 significant strikes. At what point has Avila shown that she can fight deep into a third round? That she can throw up 80, 90, 100 significant strikes? That she can take a punch and give one? That she can scramble back up to her feet? So there's just so many. And she's coming off the layoff with a knee injury. She's the favorite, right? So, like, I don't know, man. On a, on a personal level, I feel like you just have to bite the bullet and take Misha Tate. Now, I'll admit, seeing her in her last fight, she looked super disinterested. Uh, wasn't the same Misha Tate that we remember. Wasn't that same ability to cut the corner and push forward. When she got hit, she got stung a little bit. She took her foot back. Maybe it was the beginning of signs that Misha Tate is not, you know, it, it's, it's definitely coming near the end. But I'll give it a benefit of the doubt. She fought at 125 one time. She drops down to 125. She makes the weight. Everyone says she looks good on the scale. She performs very flat by her, by her, you know, standards, very flat. And then she's not looking to go back down to 125. She's coming back up to 135, where she's a former world champion, where she feels her best. So give me 75% Misha Tate to beat 75% Julia Avila. If they were both 100%, Misha Tate wins all day. But we know that they're both not 100%. They're both 50% of what they were at their best. Sorry. Misha Tate's 50% of what she was. Avila's 75%. So it's, it's at what point do those pass cross? I don't know. But I will take that plus money on Misha Tate and think the back class carries her through here to get it done one last time. And she's a massive fan favorite. The crowd in Texas is going to be hot for her. Uh, she's just got to go out there and a hustler, and I think she can. All right. I mean, her she has one win since 2016. And in fairness, you know, that win in 2016 was winning the belt uh, in round five with a submission against Holly Holm. But otherwise, it's one win in five attempts over the last, since 2016, um, July of 2016. That's We had a baby, Paul. Seven time years off. ago. Seven years ago. She's almost, almost my baby. age, buddy. And everyone knows I'm washed. Um, so, uh, tough spot. Tough, tough, tough spot. Uh, moving on down, we got Zach Reese taking on Cody Brundage. Zach Reese is a minus two twenty favorite. Brundage can be had for plus one ninety. Brundage is such a goof, and I, I've faded him. Uh, the the Cendric Dumas one when you know Brundage ended up being the favorite. That one was tremendous. Um, I faded I faded Brundage most of the way. But the interesting thing about this spot is like. Zachary's frankly, you know, the bookmakers, maybe they're just dead wrong about this guy. Cause what well, on LFA, he was a plus 60, 660 uh underdog against Tommy Britton. Gets a first round knockout 52 seconds in. He's a plus 120 underdog on contender series against Eli Aronov. Gets a first round submission a uh, minute and 14 seconds in. Otherwise, like, for, there's a reason why the books think, like, the, re, the books thought this guy was absolute trash and he kind of proves them wrong, comes through as, as an underdog in both spots against pretty low-level competition. I don't know, man. It's, it's, it's hard to go from that to all of a sudden now this guy, Brundage, for all the faults he has, he makes horrible decisions in the cage. You know, he's got decent wrestling. The ring IQ is yeah, obviously off the charts bad. Like next level, maybe it's on the Mount Rushmore. You I mean, when you pull guard on Rodolfo Vieira, 
you are on the Mount Rushmore of poor fight IQ. Like it's like forever and ever. I'm never going to let that. I'm, I'm never going to forget that. I'm never going to let that down. But is Zachary's worth the price of admission at minus 220? Like you got to talk me through this one. Cause like, I really don't want to pull the, the trigger on Brundage here, but I'm like, I'm curious about what's going on here. Yeah, no, honestly, I see this one's a tight spot because Zach Reese, guy that you want to fade instantly, you're like, whoa, minus 225 Zach Reese. I'll take whoever the opponent is. Then it's like, oh, the opponent's Cody Brundage. It's like, Ooh, will he find a way to screw it up for me? So, like, yeah, tempting, tempting. And I think I am going to bite the bullet and have a little feeler here on Cody Brundage. But it was Zach Reese. It's like, you're, you're more so guessing, guessing that he's not that good because what he shows, man, this guy's really good. Uh, he's finishing everybody in the first round. He's finishing some of these guys in 30 seconds, a minute. Uh, he obviously got some big power. As you mentioned, the LFA fight, big first round knockout. And then that last fight with Aronov. Aronov's big physical guy gets on top of him and this kid just snatches up the arm right away. So yeah, what he's showing is awesome. It's like, what, what are you missing? And so he's got an interesting story is that he's had an amateur fight in 2012 against Kevin Holland. Lost, took five years off, came back for one fight, won took another year off or a year or two off and then his brother died. And then at that point he needed an outlet. So he decided he was going to start fighting pro and he's been fighting pro, but one and oh, oh, and one, oh, and oh, uh, beats Aaron Phillips. I suppose that would be his big win, right? 33 second submission, quick submission, quick submission. Can this guy fight a second round? Shit, man. I couldn't tell you. Can this guy take a punch? Couldn't tell you. He doesn't move all that well. He's not some super gifted athlete. He's not like he's an athletic specimen. The guy doesn't come from a wrestling base. He doesn't come from a traditional martial arts base. He doesn't have some sneaky boxing in his back pocket. He doesn't have all these intangibles. And we don't know about his cardio or his chin. So so he's very prone to shit in an apple pie because you're assuming he can do all these things without actual any evidence that he can do all these things. So I bet Aronov, because Aronov is a big, strong physical guy, and I've seen him fight a few times. He fought up here in Canada and uh, for unified MMA, and I actually don't mind him. And he just catches a kick, and Zachary just falls over. As soon as he falls over, it's like, oh, shit, man. Aronov jumps on top of him and gets armbarred. But the takedown defense might not be there either. A lot of red flags. Now, Brunridge, man, and his whole career is a red flag. All he does is find a way to blow it. But to his credit, he's fought in just largely way better guys. And yeah, there's some stuff to like about him. He's at a factory X Muay Thai. In theory, training out of Colorado would give him an advantage in cardio. His cardio doesn't seem to be great. But again, he's a guy that shouldn't be underprepared. Rested in college. Has that big overhand right. You saw him in the Treshawn Gore fight. Big overhand right. Knocks out Gore. Decent little win. The Vieira fight, in the first round of the Vieira fight, he drops him with that same overhand right. It's fast, it's clubbing, but he's strong. I would say he's faster than Reese. He's more athletic than Reese. He has better wrestling than Reese. His fight with Cedric Dumas, not great. Low on volume, but again, his takedowns look pretty good. Blast double leg, gets him up against the cage, throws him to the ground, ends up getting reversed from Dumas, and herein lies the biggest problem against Cody Brunridge. When he's the hammer... Guy's not bad. When he's the nail, he is awful. Oh, my God. And so you look at all these fights, right? The uh, Mikey O fight. Well, Lord Mikael, you know, he hits like a hammer. So that one wasn't going to go good for him. The Rodolfo fight starts good. As soon as Rodolfo pulls his head out of that stupid guillotine choke and puts a little pressure on him, he folds. As soon as Dumas puts him on his back, he folds. And the record books will tell you he's coming off a win over Jacob Malkoon. But it's like, 
the stupidest one of all time. Disqualification. Dude, he, he was folded, is what he was doing. He opened his back. He's pinned up against the cage. He's allowing himself to just die here. And an uh, elbow slips back to the back of his head. And he quits and says he can't continue. And that's the end of the fight. So adversity, not good for this guy. Not good for him. And so that train of thought, Zach Reese is a guy that puts a lot of pressure on. He's an offensive dynamo. If he puts any type of pressure on Brunridge, he probably breaks him. Why not pick Zach Reese? Because we don't know if he can do it for three minutes, right? We don't know if he can do it for a round. We don't know if this thing goes later. And so we've got Brunridge with, on paper, better wrestling. On paper, he's got the experience, obviously, multiple fights in the UFC, fought in way better level of competition, trains at, on paper, the better gym with the better training partners. I, I just think this number screams you got to take a flyer. It's Brunridge, I get it, but I just feel like I need to take a flyer here. And this is a absolute pink slip fight for him. He should be on a four-fight losing streak. Malcoon should have finished him in the first round, and he likely would have gotten cut. Instead, he gets a disqualification win. They owe him one, I guess, and they're giving him one. But it's do or die, and I think he's going to come out in decent shape and put forward a good effort. What I liked in that Cedric Dumas fight was that he never tried to really exchange strikes with him. He knew the game plan was shoot takedowns, get this guy down, beat him on top. Is Zach Reese Rodolfo Vieira? Is Zach Reese going to sub him off his back with an armbar with some with some crazy technique? Maybe. I don't know about all that, man. I think Brunridge will be well-equipped, have a good game plan, and go out there and hopefully put forth his, his best effort. And uh, last but not least, but you'll remember that fight with Dolce Lungambula. He's getting his ass kicked, and then he just stays in the fight long enough to expose a front-runner. He might have to do the same here with Zach Grease. He might be getting beat up a little bit early. He's just got to stay in this thing long enough to plant him with the takedown and go to work on top. You said the words, he's going to come in here with a great game plan. You don't mean you don't mean you don't mean those words. You don't mean those words. Sounds like I'm probably gonna end up with money on Cody Brundage this week. God have mercy on my soul. That's disgusting. But no, like you make a lot of good points. He will be the official pick for me. Um we just don't yeah, outside of round one, we don't really know anything about this Reese guy. He's been finishing everybody. He's, he's enormous. He's six foot four. I'll probably wait until later in the week because, like, I really struggle to see people, like, you know, pounding the Brundage side here. And then there's going to be weigh-ins. They're going to have stare-downs. And people are going to see that, you know, Zachary's is four inches taller than him. Yada, yada, yada. Yeah, it's ugly, but uh, it makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense until he's unconscious and... My bet loses. Moving on down. We've got Drakkar Clo- Close taking on Joe Selecki. Minus 120 for Close. Plus 100 for Selecki. I like Drakkar Close here. I'm kind of surprised by this line. I bet it like uh, three or four days. Or my one buddy uh, Mick reached out. And I kind of looked into it. And then I ended up betting it as well. I bet it like last week. You know, you have a little bit of FOMO. There's no fights that week. Um, I was, and then it went up to like minus 140. I'm like, good. I have a little bit of CLV on that bet. And then money started piling back in on Joe Selecki. Like, Drekar Close ha- does have a way of making fights very, very close. Sometimes the volume just quite frankly really hadn't been there. He's made some improvements, it seems, in his last couple of fights on that front. Um, pretty well-rounded guy. Uh, I think he's obviously giving up, uh, you know, submission grappling is going to be a big advantage for Joe Selec here, no doubt in my mind. But you go through uh, Close's record, and what, his only two losses in his UFC career, 
are against Benil Dariush and David Tamor. Interestingly, whatever happened to David Tamor? Because, you know, he lost to Charles Oliveira by Anaconda. He hasn't fought since 2019. That guy was actually, like, half decent. He must have, he like, was. must have had to, like, maybe he had, like, a kid, had to get serious, had to get a hashtag real job. I, I don't know, but it's kind of weird that, like, he just disappeared completely off the map. No idea. So, uh, yeah, let us know if you know what happened to David Tamor, because I have no idea. But, but do not let us know what happened to Daniel Tamor. Not interested. Oh, man, those guys are brothers. You could have fooled me. Well, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I think close is a nice number here. I think he should have significant advantages on the feet. I like the gym that he's training at um, with... Um, you know, with guys like uh, Figgy and and uh, and uh, Gastelum in Phoenix getting ready for this card, like it all kind of seems to point towards your car close here. So I'm just kind of stunned that it's like such a playable line at minus 120. But uh, yeah, close for me. What about you? Yeah, honestly, I was kind of leaning towards Joe Selecki, but this is one of those picks that I just, I don't love. I can see other guy winning. I can see it being a close fight. And the judges in Texas are going to have to get it right accordingly to just control time. It has to be control time. If they're looking for damage, Jakar Close is going to box this kid up. Jakar Close will land the better shots. If they're going to look for control time, I got a nagging suspicion that Selecki just slings himself to Close's back, goes in a body triangle, backpacks him for two rounds, Could. and then maybe pro- probably loses the third round. But at that point, he's already going to be up. So starting with Jakar Close, you mentioned the losses, David Tamor and, and Benil Darius, but he flat robbed Bobby Green. He got outstruck 92 to 58, mm-hmm. and he got taken down by Bobby Green in that fight. And again, decisions, a lot of people, a lot of fans, a lot of board the fight, a lot of them are close, a lot of them are competitive. So I don't love betting him as a favorite. This is this is near even, let's be real. But again, I just don't love backing him as favorite. Anyways, doesn't matter. Um he fights he's got a I guess it'd be the Lando Venada, one takedown given up against Lando Venada, one takedown against David Taymor, two given up against Mark Casey, one against Bobby Green. Two against Christos Giagos, one against Benil Darius, three in his last fight against Rafa Garcia. Man, he gets taken down in 90% of his fights, more oftentimes than not, more than one time. So that's going to be extremely problematic here against Joe Selecki, who again just needs the quick takedown or the trip up to get the position. Then he's going to backpack you. Then he's just going to hold on to you and he's going to cling on to you. And close giving up or um, him giving up that many takedowns. Yeah, I would I would think that's that's not going to be massively beneficiary. The other problem is he gets taken down twice against Giagos, knocked out by Benil Darius, and then there's it's a full year off. Then he gets to the weigh-ins against Jeremy Stevens, and Jeremy Stevens pushes him, and he suffers like massive whiplash that causes him to miss another year, right? Comes back and beats Brendan Jenkins, who can't win in Bellator or PFL or Gamebred MMA or BKFC for that matter. Like Brendan Jenkins, I don't know, it doesn't matter. And then the Rafa Garcia fight. Well, the Rafa Garcia fight, he gave up three takedowns. He gave up three minutes of top control. Prior to that, his takedown defense, yeah, again, he gets a taken down a few times here and there, usually pops back up. That was the worst his grappling looked, I thought, against Rafa Garcia. And then what happens after that fight? He gets booked against Mark Madsen. He blows out his ACL, and now he's taking a year off. He's coming off with a reconstructed knee, a year-long layoff. He's 35 years old. His takedown defense hasn't held up in his other fights. 
not recipe for someone I really want to back, if we're being honest. Now, Joe Selecki looks underwhelming. He actually does. If you look at him, he's not the most physically strong guy. His strike is not very good. His wrestling is actually not really all that good. It's that he's one of these guys that will just use the position. He doesn't have to take you down with a big old blast double or a big old slam against the cage. It's that he just gets on the single leg, gets you, runs you to the cage, and then just slowly works the underhook, slowly slinks to your back, slowly gets on top of you. His fight with Jim Miller, one takedown over Jim Miller in that fight, Nine and a half minutes of control time over a well-known BJJ black belt. The Jared Gordon fight, he did lose, okay? And he got four takedowns, six minutes of control time over Jared Gordon, a guy that never stops. The Alex De Silva fight, one takedown, control time. And then Carl Deaton is last time out. Carl Deaton should have been in there with them, let's be real. But it's the same thing he's going to try to do here. He just works his way to the back, and then he backpacks you, and then he holds on. And it's a terrible position because it's tough to get the guy off and it's hard to score it for you when you're landing short little punches and someone's holding onto your back so i just think selecki if you're going to give me plus money on him and again i'm not saying i need to pick a couple underdogs and blah 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 but let's be real underdogs are going to win i do need a couple underdogs selecki screams like a dog with a shot because i think he can win the positional battle he can get those takedowns close has got the knee injury the year-long layoff 35 years old takedown defense issues in the past enough for me to say Give me a shot on Joe Selecki. Don't love it. Again, I think there's a lot of things working against him, but the way I play it in my head, it's like that's how it goes down more often than not, hopefully. And then uh, Saturday night, if it goes down that way, then great. But uh, close fight either way, but I, I got I to go with the underdog, Selecki. I'll shoey bet this one with you. I'm in on that. Haven't had a shoey bet so in a while. And it, this on one's that. like a straight pick em, And like I can totally see Selecki being, a, you know, an incredibly boring fight because that's how Selecki yeah. wins, where he just yeah. grabs a hold of him, hangs out on his back, fishes for a rear naked choke, and like the entire time just watching, just like he's not going to get out of this until the end of the round. Oh, God. Oh, God. He did it again. All right. Now, now, Dirkar Close needs a third round knockout to, to do it. So I, I know, I, I see, I, I see obviously the path for Joe Selecki. It's, I think the one thing that may be a bit of an advantage, I guess when you grab back, it's like, that's the thing about that position. It's like the ref will never stand you up, right? It's no. just a dominant position. Like it's kind of, that position is kind of ruined, like in some respects, like the entertainment aspect of MMA. Cause if he was just in like, if he was just in, you know, top control, hanging out in guard. It's like the re the crowd in Texas going to be like, stop humping them. Like, what are you doing? Like, you know, ref will stand them up. Um, but yeah, back control is king, I suppose. Uh, even when you're not really all that close to getting submissions and it takes you, what, almost 10 minutes to finish Carl Deaton. It is what it is. Moving on down, we got Mel Costa taking on Steve. Uh, Melk is a minus 240, uh, 240 favorite. Steve can be had for plus 200. Who you got? Yeah, I think this is my pick of the week. And like, I want to put it on the top ticket, obviously. I think for value, like minus 240 range doesn't sound great. But comparatively, that most of these other lines are steamed up here. Um, yeah, I think I think Melk Costa has, has got the goods. So with Steve Garcia, Steve Garcia has got low-key, absolute dynamite power in both hands. The guy can low-key bang, absolutely can bang. Thing is, is that he's not durable at all. And he's a defensive liability. He's fairly slow. 
He stands right in front of you, and he just looks to slug it out. So if he was durable, he'd be a fine fighter. But the fact that he just gets chin-checked every other fight, he gets rocked every other fight, he gets wobbled every other fight, it's going to catch up to him at some point. People will obviously remember, well, I guess it's just like even most of his losses, um, I the Charlie Ontiveros fight, right? So 2021, massive favorite over Charlie Ontiveros, who was never going to win a fight in the UFC. And Charlie comes out and just smokes someone, lopsided the head, karate stance, kick comes flying, Garcia's tumbling all over the place, he gets up and knocks him out. The the Mahashat, Mahashat fight, same thing. He just walks in, gets floored by Mahashat, okay? You and I had a shoey bet on that fight. I had Steve Garcia. You had Mahashat. He just walks into the shot, hits the deck, pops back up. Mahashat's standing there, and he, Paul, hands at his hips, walks into a second counter. It's like, what could you possibly be thinking but defensive liability all day. I just don't think his chin's quite there. He's won his last two fights, and he's shown you that big power. He dropped Chase Hooper three, four times. The Shailen Numbayaki fight, you know, he showed that big power there. But those guys weren't able to return fire. Hooper doesn't have that big power to get his respect and hurt him. Numbayaki is a grappler by most accounts. He doesn't really have that power to get him. If you are a decent striker, you're going to split the guard and touch this guy. And if you split the guard and touch Steve Garcia, he's going down. Now, Milt Costa in his debut, talk about a tough debut. He comes in there and they throw him in against Thiago, uh, Thiago Moises. Like, shit, man. It's a top 15 ranked lightweight and it's your debut. And in the goddamn, he looked okay in the first round, man. He's working him over in the first round. He, he's got excellent distance management, fights very long, very fast, likes to use volume, knows he's probably going to get taken down. So he's a little bit hesitant, any short notice. Second round, he kind of tires a little bit. Not really tires a little bit, but gets taken down, gets subbed. Not a great performance. The next fight with Austin Lingo's full camp, that's where you see him at his best. He lands 100 significant strikes. He matadors them the entire time. And what's most impressive about that fight is the first round, it's like, oh, dude, what are you doing? He throws, in the first round alone, he was recorded as throwing 94 significant strikes in the first round, of which he landed 43 significant strikes in the first. But he throws 94 significant strikes in the first. I'm thinking, man, you're going to gas. You can't keep doing that. And he does. He throws 83 significant strikes in the second. And then the third round, where it appeared like, okay, maybe he's starting to gas there a little bit, is that he had already thrown, you know, almost a couple hundred significant strikes at this point. Uh, I, I I like him. It, Austin Lingo got desperate in that fight because Austin Lingo realized I'm predominantly a boxer with no leg kicks and no real great ability to cut off the cage. So he got following. And as he got following, he kept waiting for Costa to either slow down or to stand still. Neither of which ever happened. Costa looked awesome against him. When I think about Steve Garcia, Steve Garcia is the same thing. He's not looking to kick. He's not really looking to grapple. He's looking to come in the pocket, throw lefts and rights, box you up. And I think that Costa is going to do the exact same thing he did in Lingo. Just skirt the outside of the cage, let him come to you, and then bomb him. Here's the difference. Austin Lingo took one hell of a beating in that fight. No idea how it went to decision. I don't even think his coaches or he himself knew how it went to decision. He took a beating. Kept trying to come forward, but what can you do? Steve's not going to take that same beating. He doesn't have Austin Lingo's durability. He's going to come forward and throw a couple, and if he catches Costa, great. But Costa's never been knocked out clean, hasn't mm -hmm. been finished since 2017, and again, he moves well. So Garcia comes and throws a couple decent shots, good on him. But as soon as it's returned, as soon as the favor is reciprocated, he's going down, man. He's taking a nap. I think it's either first round or second round knockout, but cost is the play. Want to put it on the top ticket. 
Gotta wait till Wayne's, obviously. Likely ends up on the second ticket, and we just take the slightly safer route because it's striker versus striker, and Garcia's looking to bang. But I, I think this is a very favorable matchup for him, and I think the UFC can market this kid. Fairly young, dynamic, very exciting style, talks well, and uh, I don't think, like, skin condition or anything like that, but, like, yeah, why can't this guy, you know, overcome the odds and 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 be something? So I, I like him. I actually do think he uh, he goes on to that next stage. Does he speak English? I don't think so. But yeah, they I can mean, market again, him in matter. Brazil. They got well, yeah, they can market these guys that are flashy that have an interpreter. It doesn't really matter if yeah. Kyle Barahao, who also speaks no English and has a very very boring style can get over with the fans and it doesn't take much let the highlight reel speak for itself in this case i mean paulo costa is completely over with the fans and let's face it he can barely speak english so i, I get your point there no i mean i don't really have too much to add to that mel costa i think skill for skill it's not even remotely close here uh steve seems pretty knockout or bust um and mel costa has never been knocked out um i guess you would have to Maybe way back when, when there's like a doctor's stoppage in his first loss of his career, maybe that had to do with uh, striking. But I don't know. I haven't watched the tape on that one, but uh, that was so long ago. I think the lingo fight showed us what he's capable of doing. And that's a pretty well-rounded skill set. He's able to get takedowns. He shows, uh, you know, even against like being on the ground against uh, Thiago Moises, he showed that he's got some uh, grappling capabilities there um just as yeah he has kind of all of the skills he's putting them together well whereas steve is pretty much a banger um it's all been downhill for my boy mahashat since then you've won a lot of shoey bets since then but that's the one that you know holds firm in my heart uh, uh having my boy mahashat there but yeah it's been bad since then it's been very bad since then Imagine taking Steve in Singapore, Cody. Wouldn't be me. Moving on down. Poor Steve. Poor Steve in Singapore. All right, moving on down. We got Rodolfo Vieira taking, uh, Rodolfo Bellato taking on Ihor Puteria. Biggest favorite on the card is Bellato. Uh, he's minus 400. Ihor can be had for plus 300. I mean, Bellato on, on his second run, of contender series had a nice little performance there um shows up and looks like a 205er that has decent volume uh decent well-rounded skill set was first run on contender series in hindsight doesn't look so bad because Petrino is obviously a badass and is a young badass that's getting better every single fight so uh, Ehor has shown us really nothing inside of the octagon outside of finishing the ghost of Mauricio Shogun. Who it's scary looking at this minus 400 uh price tag. Uh, maybe you can talk some sense into it, but I think what we've seen from Bellato in most of his career outside of literally, I mean, he's taken on Petrino twice and gotten finished by him twice, but we're just seeing how good this Petrino kid is. So it's like, yeah, Petrino would probably eat Ihor Puteria's lunch as well, maybe even easier. So um, I think Velato's a rightful favorite, but at minus 400, it's hard to argue that there's meat on the bone there. What's your take here? 
Yeah, it's a little bit difficult. I would say, and not that it is, if this was a video game and I was able to play as Bellato, I got Rodolfo, and then you have Eeyore, I think I beat you 9 out of 10 times. Because I just shoot the takedown, right? I just click the takedown button and allow him to shoot the takedown and get this thing over with. He's way better on the ground than Eeyore. Eeyore has very little ground game, very little durability. You shoot one easy takedown right to start this fight, you get on top of him, you're going to do one of two things. You're going to tire him out, take all of the gas out of him, but you're just going to break him. This would be a one and done. That's it. Thing is, not a video game. I can't push the button. And Bellotto's got this tendency of just, he wants to make it exciting. He wants to stand and bang. And yeah, it works for him here and there, but it doesn't here and there. Vitor Petrino will give you a pass. He was super green when he fought him. He was very raw when he fought him, but he's standing and bang with him. He tried to go toe-to-toe with a guy that had massive power. He got knocked out the first time against Petrino, and what's he do the second time? Basically the exact same thing. It's that last fight in the Contender Series. He wins two on LFA, then he has a second fight for Contender Series against Murtaza Tala. The Murtaza Tala fight, he just rocks him with knees, and he's a big guy. Tala's just getting backed up constantly. Bellotto looks really good. And then Bellotto's got a guy that's dead to rights, who's back up against the cage, who's shelling over, and he's just... His hands are down to his hips. He's just landing these small little uppercuts, these small little slapping shots. And even though Taha is a, is a dog backed into a corner, who's pretty much done at this point, he lands some decent shots on Bellotto. Now, Bellotto takes them because Taha just doesn't have that big power, and he's already hurt at this point. But against a guy like Petrino, you, you see the same thing. He allows himself to get hit. And when you allow yourself to get hit against people who have power, you just, you're prone to make the mistake. Now, that's why I would like to see him wrestle or grapple early against Eeyore. Eeyore's a a one-round guy. He's a fraud, but he's a one-round fraud. He's 13 first-round finishes. If he's going to win, you know what his win condition is. He needs to catch you. He's a southpaw. It's not overly big for the division, but, I mean, he's got a decent little left hand, and he'll try to just explode. Quick explosion, quick combination. But he's got terrible cardio, terrible durability, and literally don't give him his only win condition. Don't stand in front of him. Don't make this kicky punchy. Take that away. But if you want to stand in front of Ehor, then maybe he catches you. But I think he's on his way out personally. Uh, this is where he screws up, right? So he wins on the contender series. Pretty cool. They give him Nikolai Nigamarianu. Nigamarianu just comes forward. Nigamarianu uh, mixes in the wrestling. He shoots a couple takedowns. He grinds him up against the cage. He tires him out. And once Ehor is tired, he just curls over and dies. TKO win for Nigamarianu. That next fight, they give him Shogun Hua. Shogun is a retirement fight. He's an aged legend. There's nobody on the roster he can beat, but maybe he can beat Eeyore because that's how little they think of him. And Eeyore goes, he beats a ghost of the ghost of the ghost of a shell of Shogun Hua, and then he dances right in his face. Apparently, it's a traditional Ukrainian dance, but it was disrespect. He disrespected the legend, Paul. And the UFC have not been kind to him. They give him Carlos Ulberg. He gets dusted. They're giving him Rodolfo Bellotto now. He's a big underdog. He's going to get dusted. They're likely going to cut him. But if for whatever reason they didn't cut him, they wouldn't give him a low-level striker for a fun fight. They're going to feed him to some Russian guy that's going to toss him on his head and smash him out. I think that uh, he fell out of favor with them right then and there. And so, dead man walking. Dead man walking on the green mile. Last thing I'll throw in for you guys that like doing your own tape study, which I always encourage, is that go watch his fight with Alberg. So Eeyore is a striker, right? He's got the 13 first-round finishes. This is a guy that likes to land that left hand, land that little high kick, southpaw, all that jazz. He goes against Alberg and he shoots quite literally the crappiest takedown you've ever seen. In your... He's in the center of the cage, and Alberg's near the cage, the base of the cage, and he shoots like a double leg with his arms out, 
like a hug, and Alberg just easily tosses him over. And then he tries it a second time, about two minutes into the first round, and Alberg just must have hit him with something in the way in, but he just falls face forward and quits. It was almost like a dive. If you watch that fight enough times, you could tell yourself that it was a dive. And to me, it was he's facing a striker who he knows he can strike. He doesn't want to strike anymore. He's now all of a sudden trying to wrestle and grapple, and that's what he brought to the table? Is that what he trained eight weeks for? Is that what he spent a whole camp for? That, that that was the outcome? That's what he had? This guy's bad. This guy's bad, man. So uh, Rodolfo will fight a stupid game plan, and it's still going to win. But he can make himself look like a minus 10,000, or he can make himself look like a minus 400. I'm hoping he just takes the path of least resistance, but chances are he's going to want the $50,000 bonus, and that usually means boxing the guy up against the cage, knocking him out. So he'll probably hunt for that. Uh, both scenarios, I think he wins. He likely is top ticket this week. But I hate top ticketing a guy when it's like they're if they both just bang it out and you're playing again, you're playing into your opponent's hand. His only chance of winning is puncher's chance within the first three minutes. If you give him that, well, this is how we lose money, right? If you fight smart, <laughs> this could be effortless, I think. But it's up to him to go out there and prove it, right? And there's nothing I can do at this point. Um, the pick is Rodolfo. Eeyore, big plus money. If you'd like taking random underdogs, at least this guy's going to try to get it done. But if you're trying to bet Eeyore, I think you're trying to bet a under one and a half and a Eeyore first round knockout because if this thing gets dragged out, he's not winning. His cardio is awful and Bellotto can go a couple rounds, believe me. All right, moving on down. We've got Wellington Terman taking on Jared Gooden. Minus 185 for Terman. Plus 160 for Gooden. Who you got? Yeah, so, I mean, Wellington Terman's always been a career underachiever. He's fought some decent guys. He's given a couple okay counts of himself. But at the end of the day, he's just largely undersized and is never really able to put it all together. The one good thing going for him, a couple good things going for him, is that he debuted in the UFC. He was like 22 years old. So he's been learning on the job, and they haven't really done him any favors. But you can see some maturity to his game. You can see him getting a little bit better. He used to be a very flat-footed shoot-to-box guy, come forward, very plodding, uh, try to just land hooks predominantly. And then since then, he tried to turn to a grappling guy, was big on the takedowns. We tried to muscle guys up against the cage. He's got that armbar win over Misha Cherkinov, a fight he was looking terrible in. But, you know, all the same, his grappling started to get there. And then he goes to 170. And I think that's the move. And mind you, he lost. He lost his last fight against Randy Brown. He looked way better than he had. Randy Brown's a legitimate welterweight. Let's not fool ourselves here. Randy Brown's capable of going and hanging out with guys in the top 15, top 10. He's definitely serviceable. Well, in tournament, it's a tough welterweight debut, but you saw at 185 pounds, he's just not big enough. He gave up 11 takedowns against Petrovsky. It's just, it's, the physicality is just not there for him. Misha Cherkinov, he's getting tossed around a little bit. The physicality is just not quite there for him. Uh, can win fights, no doubt about it, but he needs to find that comfort level. And I think at 170, what I saw in the Randy Brown fight was it went three rounds. It went 15 minutes and he didn't gas out. He's had a terrible gas tank. And I'm thinking a lot of that is fighting up a weight class against bigger guys, having to grapple against bigger guys, having to get into these scramble situations against the larger, heavier, heavier, stronger man. At 170 against Brown, the gas tank looked good. His footwork looked a lot better. The kicks looked a lot better. I mean, he was throwing tons of leg kicks. Press Brown against his It's It's actually a remotely competitive fight. He doesn't win the fight by any stretch, but he didn't look bad. Now, he's only 27 years old, has finally found his weight class, and trains full-time with Glover Teixeira and Alex Pereira. He's, at some point, it, it's going to catch up. The potential will eventually get there. And so, at what point? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. But Jared Gooden, winnable fight for him. 
Jared Gooden, again, he has the volume advantage. I think if they were just to have a pure kickboxing match, Jared Gooden, serviceable, can go out there, land 80, 90 significant strikes. It just seems like Jared Gooden's takedown defense doesn't necessarily match that striking offense. He hasn't had a whole lot of success in the UFC. He's currently rocking a 1-4 and four record. But in those four losses, uh, I guess that last one against Carlson Harris it would be the most telling. He gives up five takedowns. Outstruck, you know, Carlson Harris played that long reach game, but it was the five takedowns. Everybody else is mostly just played to the outside. Let him come forward, kind of matador him a little bit. I don't think Wellington Terman can do that. He's not going to counterpunch all night. He's not going to Floyd Mayweather himself a, 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 a you know a beautiful performance from the end. Not going to happen. What I think he can do is I think he'll be able to match Gooden's pace on the feet enough that when he does eventually get the scramble, when he eventually does hit the takedown, when he eventually does press him up against the cage and get something out of it, that it's going to be like, okay, well, the striking was close. It was 50-50. And then Wellington got the takedown. And I think that will be the difference maker. Again, I like Gooden. It's just the results at the UFC level haven't necessarily translated over for him. I know he was short notice against Carlson Harris, so maybe that's why he looks so flat. But all these other guys are trying to strike with him. Alan Joban just wanted to strike with him. Abu Bakar Nurmagomedov took him down once, but he just wanted to strike with him. Randy Brown, 100%, just wanted to strike with him. Carlson Harris is not that good of a wrestler, man. He took him down five times. To me, I think Wellington Terman just mixes in, blends it in together a little bit better and gets the win. It's the minus 185. I don't like this price tag, Paul. I don't. I think this fight is minus 135 Terman, minus 145 Terman. And people in the comment section will be like, well, if you think it should only be 145 Terman, then why don't you just bet Gooden? Because I still think that Terman's the favorite. I still think that Terman wins more times than not. I didn't take the value side. I missed out on that potential value. But I'm playing logically, who I think wins more often than not. And I think that's term. And so, again, I just keep drilling back the point. Second fight at 170, better for him. Um, you know, 27 years old, still young. Training with Glover and Alex Pereira in good hands. This kid would be okay. And I'm not saying this is a coming out party, but this is as good of a matchup that he's had in a long time. So he's just got to make best of it. Yeah, I agree there. Um Terman is the pick for me. I think he mixes in the takedowns. I think he makes it a little bit uglier. Him at this weight class seems to be uh, better all the way around. He's super, super strong at welterweight. Um, obviously, he used to fight at middleweight. Should have some size advantages, which should help that grappling capability that he has. Um, he's taking on big, strong, tough, and, uh, you know, how, uh, heavy hitters and stuff and been able to to survive out there so i mean this i feel you know he trains with you know glover and he's in there with Pereira. just like i feel like this is like a get right spot for wellington do i love it at minus 185 no but i will be picking him moving on down finally we've got uh jamie lynn horth taking on veronica hardy minus 160 for horth plus 140 for Hardy, this is like the in most interesting one um, in terms of like, you know, line movement and all that stuff this week because they opened Horth at minus 175. As of two days ago, this fight was down to a, like a straight pick em. It was like minus 110. Um, or she was at, at, at like, at, at bet online, it was minus 105 Horth. And literally in the last two days, the money has come 
piling back in, and even more so since I made the board like an hour and a half ago. Um, now she's down to minus 175 there. So it's literally back to where it started after, you know, three weeks. Um, I liked Horth when it was starting to move towards the dog. Like when she was starting to move towards the dog, I was just like, okay, like, you know, undefeated Canadian has a pretty well-rounded skill set. Um, now I don't know really what to do with this fight, Cody. Please help me. Yeah, it's a tough fight. If it was still Veronica Macedo fighting, then I would be fading her all day. But I think I'm buying into this Veronica Hardy thing. Now, there's something about certain people. They are just unlikable people, okay? Tyron Woodley is an unlikable person. Alvin Bay-Sterling is an unlikable person. Dan Hardy is an unlikable person. But you can't disrespect someone because they're unlikable. Aljamain Sterling is a great fighter. Dan Hardy is a great mind. Tyron Woodley is a bum. But with one with with Hardy, I don't like the guy, but yet he's smart. He's got a fine eye. He went in there. He fought the highest level. He has 30 pro fights. He makes it up with the likes of George St. Pierre, amongst many other greats during his time. And then since then, it's just been broadcast, broadcast, broadcast. So he talks about fighting. He flirts with the idea here and there. Don't think he's ever going to have a comeback, but he marries Veronica Macedo. She's young. She's talented. She's another girl that has been in the UFC a long time, but she signed to the UFC. She's 21, 22 years old. So now she's still only 28. She's still kind of like realizing a bit of potential. Now she holds numerous black belts. She comes from traditional martial arts. She's got excellent kicks, excellent footwork. She has a distinct speed advantage over most of her opposition because, yeah, she's undersized for sure. But she has that speed advantage. She's just never been able to blend everything together. There's some performances where she looks good. Striking is very quick, very quick. Uh, the Pollyanna Vienna fight, that armbar from guard, who would have thunk that one? But then there's just awful performances in the mix. And then she takes three years off. She has Bia Malecki, awful fight uh, against an awful fighter in Bia Malecki, and takes three full years off. And then you saw the one fight back, the difference of 25 to 28, and the difference of adding Dan Harney and an excellent game plan. She fought way different. Her footwork looked way better. Tight combinations on the inside, reverse position, took Miller down four times. It was like a really solid performance. I would think that she's going to come in here and she's going to make this closer to a 50-50 fight. Women's MMA, we know it's going to be competitive. We know this fight's likely going 15 full minutes. And Horth is going to have a massive size advantage coming down from 135 and being a big fighter to begin with. And then Macedo, Hardy, she could fight a 115 dog all day. She could, but she's coming up to 125 generally. She'll, she'll have the speed advantage. I'm not concerned about that. It's can she use that speed advantage to fight off her back foot to cause Horth to come forward, to mix in some, you know, some kicks, to fight very laterally, and then mix in a few takedowns. Why not? Horth is coming off. She didn't look bad against Haley Cowan, but she did get taken down twice against Haley Cowan. She did look a little iffy in spots. She's sure. 33 years old. So is it not possible that Veronica can just use that lateral movement, use the speed advantage, use that quickness, touch and go, touch and go, touch and go, frustrate her, cause her to over to commit to something and then hit the takedown. But you'd have to be smart to come up with a great game plan. And I think Dan Hardy is, and I think they do have a good game plan. So I think she's going to fight like a live underdog. But when you watch horse fight with Cowan, horse big and strong, man, mm -hmm. like she's 
big at 35. She's strong at 35. Her at 125, I'm sure she will be slow, but she's fought at 25 all of her regional show career has been at 125. That's actually hurt her best. And when you look at Macedo, Macedo against Juliana Miller, who's awful, right? Against Juliana Miller, she's able to touch and go. Against Horth, oh man, the kickboxing game is completely different. She's strong physically. She's got a tight game. She's got excellent kicks. It's not going to be a Juliana Miller touch her a few times and dance out of circle. The other thing is, is that Miller shoots a couple takedowns and at the last second, uh, Macedo Hardy is able to just like hit a quick reversal, hit a quick switch, hit a quick scramble. It's not going to work against Horth, who's A, not going to be shooting those takedowns, but B, is too physically strong to give up that. So when when Veronica loses, when she's always lost traditionally in her career, it's like she's always been undersized, and eventually the bigger fighter just grinds her out and beats her. And mm-hmm. Horth has all of those characteristics. But for anybody that got solid plus money on her, I can see it because in my mind, probably closer to 50-50. It comes down to speed versus power, size versus technique. And an excellent game plan. And I think the excellent game plan could be on the table for her. We've just seen one fight, but a three-year-long layoff. And then you show up and it's like, damn, that's as good as you've ever looked. That's positive signs. 28, got some money. Her man's got some money. This is what she wants to do and this is what she wants to pursue. She's in good hands. So who was your pick? Uh, yeah, I'm a coward, so I'm going to go with the Canadian girl, Horth. But uh, I want to, I want to, I want to see, I want to see the weigh-ins for sure. I got four dogs on this card. That's enough for me. But I want to, I want to see the weigh-ins. But I'm going to take Horth. She's become a big favorite now. It's actually plus minus one eighty. People are hammering the Horth side here. Um, yeah, again, the tape don't lie. But no, it's so it's so like it's one of the craziest. Two wins moves. over Lupita Godinez as an amateur, like she. It's like you have like two factions of like, you know touts that have like a big following or something and they're like disagreeing on this one because it literally went like from where it is now all the way up to a pick and then now it's charging back down like pretty much across the market it's a very very strange one not used to seeing that one play out i mean i'll well, dead hardy I think for the purposes of this show for, for my events. pick i'll i'll enact the cf dot model but the way this market is moving it's just like yeah, is is Horth gonna be like minus three hundred by the time fight time happens? Because I'll be a buyer on the Hardy side if that's the case. Yeah. But you make yeah, a lot of good points that. about like when uh, Mas- formerly P- Macedo has had a lot of issues is when she's taking on somebody who's stronger and like able to grind her out, make it ugly, um, and that's exactly what Horth does. So um, it'll be an, it, it's an interesting opener to the card. Uh, Hardy will be the pick for me. Horth is the pick for you. The markets are insane on that one. Um, yeah. So what do I have on the docket so far this week? I've got Soriano round one KO plus three thirty-five. Took that on the show. Um, while you were talking there, I took Mel Costa parlayed with the under one and a half rounds in uh, Reese versus Brundage. Uh, that's it. Uh, plus one twenty nine parlayed together is a pretty good number on those on those two ones. Uh, I've Drakkar close, which I took like a week ago at minus one twenty. The market's still the same on Drakkar close. You like Selecki, so it's not really up your jam. Hopefully, I win the uh, the shoey bet there. And I got King Bobby Green uh, plus one eighty eight on the money line, but we'll be looking to uh, sprinkle that round three prop because I can't help myself. Cody hit him with the PRP. Yeah, this week we're going to go with Armin Sarukian 
Oh, I'm such a biatch. Uh, Jalen Turner. We're going to go Davidson Figueroa, dog number one. Sean Brady, even money. Joaquim Silva, uh, Puanahale Soriano. Misha Tate, dog number two. Cody Brunridge, dog number three. Joe Selecki, dog number four. He's probably also the PRP pick, and I got a shoey bet. So don't love it, but I'm betting. Uh, Melt Costa, really like him. We're going to go with Rodolfo Bellotto, biggest favorite on the card. Wellington Terman could be a potential apple pie shader. We'll have him a little bit lower, but he'll be the play. And uh, Jamie Lynn Horth, again, as a first fight on the card. I mean, worst case scenario, we rebuild a little bit. Again, don't want to, don't plan to, but... Uh, yeah, Wayne's is going to be telling because there's a few fighters on this card that have struggled oh, sure. to make weight. And yeah, it's a couple people fighting at new weight classes. So that'll be telling. But yeah, you're going to miss a couple lines. You're going to miss a little bit of value. Something's going to swing some way or another. Uh, that's the problem with waiting later in the week. But it is what it is. Again, 13 fights. Very solid card from an entertainment standpoint. Starts at four o'clock. And then this is dope. Starts at four o'clock. I'm going to guess it ends about 10, six hours, six hours, 13 fights. The UFC's pacing is awful, but, you know, call it about 10 o'clock. And then the BKFC card is this weekend with Mike Perry, Eddie Alvarez. Ooh, what a good looking card that is. And you're going to have violence all night as well. So perfect world. Make some money on the UFC. Make some money on the BKFC. More realistic world. Make some money on the UFC. Lose some money on the BKFC. Goddamn bare knuckle boxing. Anyways, it'd be a fun weekend regardless, Paul. So uh, thanks. I know I've had some internet issues, something I'm working on, New Year's resolution, let's say. But uh, thanks for your patience as always, brother. No problem, buddy. All right, that is it for us this week. Hope you enjoyed the show. For producer Megan and Cody Saptic, I'm Paul Shaughnessy saying goodbye and good luck. Oh, oh, oh.